Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 47 to 65. 47 through 65, if you will give your attention to the reading of God's word. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against, come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Let's ask the Lord's help together as we prepare to open his word. Father in heaven, we bless your name. Lord, we give you glory and thanksgiving that you have included us in your eternal purposes of salvation. Lord, thank you for calling our names. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for purchasing us with the blood of your son, saving us, Lord, from the bondage of sin and death. Lord, we are grateful that we have the opportunity today to hear your word, that word which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we pray that you would use it in our lives, that it would, be, that it would speed ahead and be honored in our hearts in the way that we receive it, Lord. 
Lord, we pray that you would get glory out of your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you of Christ's words that immediately precede the text we have under consideration today that he spoke to his disciples where he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Two times the Lord had sought to impress this point upon the hearts of his people, the absolute necessity of prayer, that need which perhaps was heightened more than any other time in their lives in this particular hour when they were objects of Satan's particular attention and schemes. Demonic designs, you'll remember, have been put into place. Uh, Jesus warned them that the devil wanted to sift them like wheat to to shake them and to do violence unto, unto them. He was watching and waiting, and if they were to be found standing, they must learn to watch and to wait upon the Lord. Uh, seeking him in prayer, being dependent on him. If they were to emerge victorious, uh, the implication of the whole text that precedes this is that it would only be through prayer, through seeking the face of God. Well, have the disciples heeded Christ's warning? To put it in simple terms, have they prayed? Have they received that strength which comes from above Or is it their plan to go at it on their own? Of course, we know the answer to that. The disciples couldn't tarry even for an hour, Jesus says. Christ, on the other hand, he labors in prayer. He spent that whole evening pouring out his soul to the Father. He fell on his knees, not once, not twice, but three times seeking the Lord in total dependence on the Lord. And and so, as, as we come to this moment, at the hour of Christ's death, this hour of great darkness, which is now at hand, Jesus and his disciples enter into it in very different ways. Here we see, get to, uh, played out before our eyes, the efficacy of prayer. We see in Christ the Father's willingness and in fact his delight to hear the one who calls on his name and to renew the strength of the one who waits on him. We also see though the fruit of prayerlessness in the lives of the disciples. And so we are both warned and encouraged to look once again still more seriously at Jesus's admonition to be people of prayer. It was while Jesus was still speaking on this theme, the utter indispensability of prayer, that what follows in the text we're going to look at today plays out. Now you look at Jesus here, and what do we discover in that scene that follows his time of prayer? Well, we find a picture of Isaiah 26 and verse three, where it says, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Jesus enters into this bitter hour in which he is going to be mocked 
and beaten, blasphemed, eventually hung up on a cross to die, and we find a man at peace with God. We find a man at peace with the Father's foreordination of his every step. Jesus is not fretting. He isn't wringing his hands. He is at rest with the Father. He is the preeminent example of what 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19 enjoins on all believers, on all of us. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And Jesus does this. Jesus commits himself to the Lord. And so you begin now to see the fruit of that on the, on the other end. He is composed. In fact, he is the one asking the questions as that arresting party comes into the garden, the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the scribes. He is actually the one making the inquisition. We'll see that more in just a few moments. But then we turn to the disciples, and what do we find in them? What does their, their sleep and their prayerlessness get them? Worried, anxious hearts, self-reliant hearts. We, we see in them impulsive hearts. The disciples' minds aren't stayed on the Lord. They haven't prayed, and so they're not at peace. They don't trust in the Lord, which means in turn that their hearts respond out of fear, out of worry. They respond out of the flesh and not of the spirit. You can see this contrast from the very outset in their respective interactions with Judas and this arresting party that he leads into Gethsemane. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. So Judas draws near to Jesus in order to kiss him. But Jesus, knowing that Satan has entered into his heart, knowing he was going to betray him, takes command of the scene. Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss. Notice here that, Judas, that Jesus rather does not lash out at Judas in response. He doesn't get riled up. He doesn't become unrighteously angry. He is eminently in control. In fact, he continues to preach and to minister even in his final hours. Judas deals treacherously with the one that he has proclaimed as Lord in order that he might take Jesus away to die on the cross and all of this for, for 30 pieces of silver. And yet what does Jesus do? Having sought the face of God as he has, full of the Holy Spirit as he is, well, he speaks words that point not to some sense of offense on Jesus's part, but that target the heart of Judas. Even in the very midst of his betrayal, Jesus puts his finger on the heart of this man who has walked with him for years, who has been the object of his own love and kindness. 
They have shared countless meals together. Jesus has washed Judas's feet. Yet Jesus is not angry and vindictive. He does not revile in return. The temptations that accompanied this hour, no one but Christ could ever begin to understand or to know. But in the midst of it, our Lord preaches a a whole sermon, as it were, just in one question. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You know who I am, Judas, the Son of Man. That favorite self-designation of the Lord, that title which, which speaks of Christ's humanity, his humility, his condescension and humiliation, his identification with the people that he came to save. It reminds us that he came in the flesh, that he might redeem those who are in the flesh. He is the God-man in whom the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus is the son of man. Judas, would you betray me, the son of man? Would you align your heart and, and swear your allegiance to another? Would you exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You who have been in this privileged position of seeing my my mercy and my grace poured out so frequently for so long to sinners, my readiness to, to cleanse and to forgive, would you continue in this path that you're set on? and obstinacy, and hardness of heart, and do all of this with a kiss. A kiss was a a sign of of affection. It was the standard greeting for someone that you loved on the cheek if they were your equal, on the hand if they were a teacher or a rabbi. In all of this, you see how Jesus is, is, he's putting the soul of Judas Iscariot in the spotlight. The light of Christ's own glorious countenance is calling him to an account, asking him to inquire as to where he stands before the Father and before his promised Messiah. Is your attachment to me, Judas, one of of, of purely uh, external nature? That's the heart of the issue. How many come to Christ in outward terms alone, just as Judas did? How many say, Lord, Lord, and offer him kisses, the kisses of their mouth, a a professed affection, while their hearts are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil and murder and deceit and malice. These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, the Lord said of Israel, but their hearts are far from me. There will be a day when every Judas is exposed. 
when every pretender is revealed, just as Judas was. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And yet, brothers and sisters, we, we must say what a remarkable display of love this is that exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart before that last day comes. It is a severe love. It is a severe kindness, but it is kindness nonetheless because it holds forth hope even for the pretender. It holds hope for the false professor. It holds hope for the hypocrite and the spiritual fraud. I have good news for you today. If this is you, if you find yourself in this position, if you know that you are a Judas among the 12, you may have pulled the wool over everyone else's eyes, but you know that you don't have a saving, living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It may even be that other Christians look up to you, that they admire you, that they respect you, but you know in your heart of hearts that your fear of God is nothing but a commandment taught by men. It's just something you've picked up along the way. You know how to fit in with the communion of saints. You know perhaps how to have lively conversations about the things of God, but your walk with Jesus is just a pretense and you know it. You know it in your soul. It has nothing to do with a living, saving relationship that comes from being born again. And you know that you're still under the condemnation of God's law. You know that you still have that weight of your sin laying upon your soul and are facing eternal destruction. Oh, beloved, you are not beyond the reach of God's mercy. You're not. You may be a Judas who is lost, but the pronouncement still stands. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Don't be like Judas. Let it be impressed upon your soul today. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You will. What hope there is in that? There is hope even for the pretender. Now, if you look at verse 49, you see that the disciples have a question of their own as Judas comes in. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Once again, they, they prove they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They didn't get what he meant when he was talking about the swords. And, and, and really, you, you see here that the, the question they ask it really isn't a, even a question because they don't wait around long enough to listen for an answer. It's more like a, well, just let us take care of this, Jesus. We'll, we'll handle this here because before Jesus ever responds, it says that one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. They just went ahead and took care of things for Jesus. We know from the book of John that this servant was Peter. He's the one, once again, stepping in impetuously 
to take care of things. To those who were standing around Jesus' side, Peter must have looked very brave in that moment, literally taking up arms for his Lord. But dear ones, this was not an act of faith. It wasn't. It was not born out of a heart that had found its rest in God and in the purposes of God. He was not stayed upon Christ's word. This was an act of the flesh. And Jesus tells him so. He says, no more of this. This is not in keeping with my ways. Over in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53, uh, Jesus says, do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Don't you realize that 72,000 angels, that's 12 legions of angels, the mighty host of heaven could have crushed that group of adversaries in an instant if that had been the Father's will. Don't you realize I could have done that? But no, Jesus will go to his death voluntarily. He will do so willingly of his own accord. Luke tells us something wonderful here, something that none of the other gospel writers tell us. They all tell us about the ear of that high priest servant being lopped off. But the other three uh, gospel accounts just move right along, leaving it, leaving the, air, the ear laying there on the ground. Luke adds something here. He says that Jesus stopped and healed him. And he touched his ear and healed him. Luke 6, verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The depth of Christ's compassion here for those who do not deserve it is presented in such spectacular clarity and is emblematic again of the gospel itself. Jesus heals this man whose actions are literally going to take him to the cross. What does that tell you? Christ can and will heal and save even his worst enemies. He delights to do so. Look at verse 52 with me. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Again here, you, you see who's in control of the situation. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, is this really necessary? Is this who you think I am? a criminal, a man of violence. That's the irony of, of it all. They're the ones with the swords and clubs. They're the ones who are coming out against him. They're the violent ones. They're cowards too. Jesus says, you could have picked me up any day when I was teaching in the temple. But Jesus knows what they already know and their heart of hearts that they were afraid. They were afraid of the crowds. They were afraid of the people, of what they might do. 
Well, Christ puts a point on things. If you look at, at verse 53, he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Everything that you are seeing here is owing to the power of darkness at work. Their father is the devil, the prince of darkness. And so they are of the darkness. They chose the darkness rather than the light. They did so not because there was no light, but because they loved the darkness rather than the light. They had seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They had seen many miracles. They had watched his perfect fulfillment of the scriptures. They had literally just watched a bloody head wound be restored at his touch. But this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so they continue in their evil deeds. See, brothers and sisters, the, the, the problem that is facing unbelievers is not a lack of evidence. It isn't a need for more evidence. It's the love of darkness. It's the hatred of that which is light. To put it another way, it's unregenerate hearts. It's unbelief. Only God can change that. And he will. If you will repent of your sins and believe on him, he will give you love for the light. The Bible says that if you will turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, you will receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. He'll make you a new creation, creation, someone totally different than who you are today. Now we have covered pretenders and persecutors. Now let's look at the wanderer. Verse 54, Simon Peter. Everything becomes very vivid here. Uh, Jesus is seized and then he is led away into the high priest's house. Peter follows after them. Now the mention of Peter's name here reminds us of the last time that we heard his name mentioned. Back in verse 34, these are Christ's words to him. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That was the last time Peter was mentioned. Well, now Peter follows, but only at a distance. He lags behind. One has to wonder why. If he is ready to go both to prison and to death, why does he follow in the shadows? Why do we find ourselves following in the shadows, as it were, after Christ at times? Peter's threefold denial is told in rapid fire succession. He finds his way to this courtyard where they've kindled a fire, they being the arresting party, uh, Jewish leaders there. In verse 56 and 57, you have the first denial. And it's not before a ruler, it's not before a centurion, but a little servant girl, just a doorkeeper. 
She sees him in the light. He's there warming himself by the fire. And she thinks, sure enough, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Number two, someone else sees him and said, you also are one of them. You see here that the pressure is mounting. And again, Peter emphatically denies it. He says, man, I am not. Not only does he deny the Lord, but he denies his fellow disciples. I'm not one of them. I don't belong to them. About an hour later, yet another comes along. Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. In the gospel according to John, it says that his accent betrayed him. He too is a Galilean. The implication being, why else would, a, would, would, would someone like him be hanging around a place like this at this kind of hour? John chapter 18 identifies this particular individual as a relative of that high priest's servant who had his ear cut off. And they say, didn't I see you in the garden with him? So there's this growing conviction on the part of those who, who observe Simon Peter that this is indeed one of Jesus's own. But then we come to the third denial. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. He's going to claim ignorance. He's going to pretend he has no idea what they're talking about. The other, the other gospel accounts stress the fact that, that Peter denied his Lord with oaths and curses. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak, as if to say, I call heaven to witness against me. I do not know this man. Let me be cursed, anathema, if what I am saying is false. And immediately the rooster crowed in fulfillment of Christ's words. If you look at verse 61, you find some of the most painful words, I think, in all of scripture. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then it says, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Only Luke draws this out, that it was in the Lord's presence that Simon Peter denied him. Brothers and sisters, don't ever entertain the idea that you are so close to Christ that you are so mature, that you have walked with him so long that you could never seriously stumble or fall. Don't ever entertain those ideas. Peter's weaknesses and failures are laid out in plain fashion for us in the scripture, in part for this very reason. Think of the, the, all of the advantages and privileges that Simon Peter knew. He was an apostle. 
He was one of Jesus's closest friends. He was in that inner circle. He was the very first disciple ever to hear his name called out by the Messiah. You remember that scene when he was washing his nets by the the shore after that long, fruitless night out on the water and Jesus steps in and he asked Peter to, to press out a little while, a little ways in his boat so that he could speak to the crowds who were crushing in upon him, give him some breathing room. And after he did and he, he addressed those crowds, he told uh, Simon to put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon tells the Lord how how miserable their night had been. What a lousy night of fishing they had had out on the water. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And they did so and enclosed a large number of fish so much that their nets were breaking. The catch was so big that as they got help from others and then began to load it into their boats, their boats began to sink. And when it was all over, Peter felt himself so overwhelmed by the undeservedness of the Lord's grace and kindness to him, not just in that catch of fish, but in what it symbolized that the God-man should draw near to a man like him, that all he could do was fall down to his knees and cry out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's all he could do. He knew in that moment this awesome gulf that stood between the Lord, the Messiah, and a man like him. He was humble. He saw his unworthiness. He knew that he didn't merit that kind of favor. But dear ones, somewhere along the way, something had changed. Something changed in Peter's life. And he began to see himself as deserving. He began to to fancy the idea of sitting in high places with people of renown. His heart grew puffed up with pride. And I have no doubt that this did not happen all at once. It's been said before that when a man falls, he never falls far. It is always a slow incremental series of compromises. You gradually become willing to tolerate the presence of unconfessed sin in your life. Familiarity with with cherished sin begins to creep in, but that by degrees in your heart. And I trust it was the same with Peter. It was probably a, a slow development But by the time you get to chapter 22, he had become so deceived by his sin, his heart had grown so swollen with conceit that he couldn't fathom the kind of fall that the Lord Jesus predicted. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He had become spiritually blind. He he could not see his capability of falling in such a way. Now, Peter sees the Lord's look. He finally begins to put together all of the pieces and he can't hold it together anymore. He went out and wept bitterly. 
What was his heart stirred by? It wasn't the rooster's crow. It was the Savior's look. It was when Jesus looked at him that he remembered the saying of our Lord. Well, praise God, Peter wept. Praise God that he shed the tears that he did. Christ had prophesied of Peter's denial, but you remember also he had prophesied of his return. He had said, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, here you have that first indication of turning. Those tears were the beginning of a broken and contrite heart, which the Lord will not despise. Tears that would lead to his return, his repentance, his restoration. What makes the difference between a man like Judas and a man like Peter? When Peter's faith faltered, it was a failure of courage. He was seized by fear. But it was not a heart-level denial. And when the, the word of the Lord came to him, even that, that unspoken word, when he saw Jesus look at him and he was reminded of what the Savior had said to him, his heart was broken. His heart was broken over his sin. Now Judas was sorrowful too. But it was a worldly kind of sorrow. It was a very different kind of sorrow than what you see in Simon Peter. Judas was sorrowful, but it was a sorrow that does not turn back and that in the end leads to death. Judas knew he had sinned. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knew the facts of his spiritual condition. But his was a worldly sorrow. A sorrow that leads to death, 2 Corinthians 7. And he was, instead of driven to Christ, driven to utter despair, eventually taking his own life. Peter had truly trusted in Christ. And so although his faith had sorely faltered, it hadn't failed. Listen to what Psalm 73 verses 25 and 26 say. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore, which means that though our flesh may fail, our hearts may fail, still our faith will never fail. It is because our feeble, faltering faith is in an unshakable, unfaltering Savior that our faith will not fail. And so we can go on looking with bright hope toward tomorrow because of him, not ourselves, because of his faithfulness. Why wasn't Israel destroyed? Though they had turned their back on the Lord so many times. Malachi chapter three, verse six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you 
O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The preservation of the people of God has far more to do with his character than it does with our own. The fact that Israel persevered did not hang ultimately on the people of God's performance, but the promise of God's faithfulness. The same was true for Peter. Peter was there in the upper room when the Lord Jesus lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. And ultimately, that is what made the difference. Well, so it is with us. So it is with you and with me. Ultimately, that is what makes the difference. Jesus is with us sustaining us, upholding us, praying for us, just as he promised he would do for Peter so that our faith will not fail. He will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Peter's testimony is both tragic and glorious. It stands as a warning, a warning of our depravity, of our potential, potential for pride, of the dangers of self-sufficiency, of the necessity that we follow Christ's word, that we be men and women of prayer, of the need not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. He reminds us of all of that to be sure, but it also holds out this wonderful promise, this wonderful hope to people like us, because how much further could Peter have fallen? How much more ardently could he have denied his Lord? How much more insistently could he have renounced the one who had called him to himself? And yet what grace is shown to him? Grace that exceeds all our sin and our guilt. Would you turn your hearts with me to him? Heavenly Father, we see ourselves in Peter. Lord, our sins increase over our heads. Our trespasses rise up to the heavens. When we think about your holiness and your splendor and your majesty and the perfection of your character, Lord, we have every reason to cry out, woe to me, for I am undone. God, we are very much like Peter. We have denied you in word and in thought and in deed. We have not loved you or followed you as we ought. And Lord, we know that there is nothing we could ever do to justify ourselves in your sight. Lord, any, any attempt to do so would only bring further condemnation down upon our heads. And yet what a mighty savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Lord, that is our hope today. That's what we cling to. Not anything that we find in ourselves, but in who you reveal yourself to be. Lord, we give you praise today 
God, we thank you that you do not despise a broken and a contrite heart. Lord, that though you are high and lofty, you inhabit eternity, your name is holy. You also dwell with him who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of a contrite. Though heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool, still you will look to the poor and the humble person who trembles at your word. So give us that kind of heart, O oh God. Work in our souls this day, Lord. Convict us of our sin. Let us not grow numb to its presence in our hearts. Give us tears for our sin. Draw us to your side, we pray, that we might go forth with cleansed, forgiven hearts. God, thank you that it is in Jesus Christ that we stand, that he is where our rest is to be found. We praise you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.